Welcome to I Will Watch Anything Once. I'm your host, Mark David Christensen. I was a late bloomer when it came to everything about sex. I remember seeing Weekend at Bernie's 2. I'm pretty sure it was the sequel, not the first one. And one of the characters said, you can blow me. And I didn't know what it meant. And I just remember my brother and my sister-in-law leaving. And I said, you can blow me, thinking I was really funny because I had heard this thing said. And they were like, do you know what that means? And I was like, uh, and I didn't want to look dumb. I was like, yeah, I know what it means. And I would just blow into the air in front of me, go, really dumb. Uh, to the point where that my brother and my sister and I were forced to, to sit me down and tell me what a blowjob was. <laughs> uh, pretty ridiculous that, you know, I had to, f- I found out what a blowjob was from Weekend at Burnings 2, and just because I was naive and decided to, to repeat what they said in a movie. The reason I bring that up and why I think it's silly that I was such behind the curve is that the movie that my guest on this episode picked centers around teenagers that are fully aware of the sexual world, in particularly the world of prostitution. So rather than listen to me ramble on more about me being behind the curve sexually, let's get to the episode with my guest, Alex Fernie. I am here with Alex Fernie. Hello. <laughs> we are in the middle of the day. It's now 2 p.m. and we just watched Risky Business. The prime sexy time of the day. <laughs> Sexiest time. Before we get into the discussion, uh, Alex, I was asked to ask my guest, why Why did you want – do you think I should have seen this movie? Why did you choose this one? Uh, well, uh, I really like this movie. I kind of forgotten for a few years how good the movie is. Um, when we were going back and forth, a lot of my normal, like, that's my favorite movie emails uh, you'd already seen. True. Um, but this one, I think, uh, is fairly unique in what it does. It's a comedy. Um, and it's – but it doesn't really have any of the trappings of a comedy. Um, like, there are jokes in it, but it doesn't feel – it's a tonally unique comedy, I think. You could say it's a dark comedy. I think it's kind of great to watch that as people like argue now. Oh, the you know uh, the Martian isn't a comedy; it shouldn't be nominated. But then, I, I think people are starting to really connect to comedies are a specific thing. I think this movie kind of refuses to be the bad version of it, and it could this movie should be bad. Like the the premise of it, uh, uh, if it wasn't. So, such charming actors if it wasn't directed with such style if it wasn't written so smartly it should be terrible based on, just on the log line of it um, but it isn't and a lot of that comes down to I, I think the unique tone to it yeah I would agree like let, we can jump right in then because before we jump right in give a quick synopsis of this movie just for anybody that hasn't seen it sure so like Risky Business uh, it's Tom Cruise's like one of his first movies that stars him uh, Rebecca De Mornay uh, Joe Pantoliano uh, Curtis Armstrong uh, Bronson Pinchot uh, and uh, it's very young Tom Cruise as a dorky high school senior uh, in Chicago 
uh, basically stressing about his future and going to college. He ends up uh, uh, hiring a prostitute played by Rebecca De Mornay, uh, and it's just how his life sort of spins out of control from that moment on. Yeah, that would it. That would be it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this movie completely surprised by the tone. Yeah, I had no clue going into it. It was going to be very similar to. Like with the soundtrack Tangerine Dream, which yep. we'll talk about, and very f- not traditional at all. No, and, and when you watch the movie, I think one of the best lenses to watch it through is it is almost beat for beat a John Hughes movie, except interesting. The 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 way some of the gags are shot, even the famous like uh, underwear dance scene, that's straight out of a John Hughes movie, except everything's shot in this darkness. Uh, it's it's nighttime a bunch. Uh, there's a, a, a actual feeling of threat going on. The uh, sexuality is like front and center instead of just sort of something to be laughed at. Uh, and the Tangerine Dream, Dream uh, Tangerine Dream soundtrack completely changes it. Like you, if you put that on a John Hughes movie, yeah, it's going to change it. But like when you watch it, knowing that. Uh, the, 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 it hits a lot of those beats, but I'll take this over 16 Candles or Breakfast Club because there's something about this that feels like he's trying to say something, um, the director and, and, and the writer, and I think that's fascinating. Yeah, and I think it, it ushers in more of the, tra- the, um, the, the change or the transformation from going from, like, adolescence, from a high school student into adulthood. Yeah. More so than those other movies. I think so. Yeah. And I have I, – I mean, like, this movie to me has so much to unpack that I, I get frazzled in, like, because I think there's so many elements to it, purposeful or not, that you can unpack to have some uh, a significant meaning as a, as a film and as a work of art. Um, in a way that I think probably Sixteen Candles doesn't. You know, there's flaws to this movie. Uh, it's real male gazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. like it really is. Uh, but I think that there are so many interesting decisions in this movie, and made by a man who I think only ever directed another movie, one other movie. He, uh, Paul Berkman, he didn't do a lot more, and that kind of perks my ears up of like, okay, well, this is something that was his. This was something that he wanted to make. Uh, and that makes me sort of like give a little more attention to some of those small things that could just be weirdo one-offs or could be very purposeful. Yeah, uh, either or. Like, it's a movie, even if stuff is like feels like not purposeful or like a misstep, when you watch a movie like this, you go, oh, this is a misstep because they're trying to do something. Yeah. Versus sometimes you watch a movie and you're like, like a truly bad movie is one where you're like, you just don't know what you're doing. Yeah. You have no direction. Mm-hmm. Whereas like I'll take a movie that's full of miss or, or has some missteps if I know that like, they were trying something. Yeah. They definitely didn't – they came to the table with a full vision in mind. And, and I think Risky Business has two like uh, – uh, the, the two core fascinating things that are going on in Risky Business is one is it's, it came out in 1983, and it I think it – is an infinitely better critique of uh, Reagan America, free market worshipping, the baby boom has turned into uh, uh, the uh, ultra-capitalist world that it was made in than Wall Street. I think it does it better than Wall Street does. Wall Street's on the nose and it clubs you. I have two dogs. They're in another room, but they're barking. <laughs> um, and Deborah's home. Hi, Deborah. I Hi, forgot Dad. to text you that we were starting. It's okay. <laughs> 
Um, uh, I think that's one thing that it's uh, so fascinating. It's a fascinating satire of that time. And the second thing that I think is super fascinating about this movie is uh, Tom Cruise's character Joel has no agency. He is never in charge. He is dominated by his parents. He is dominated by his friends. Uh, Rebecca De Mornay uh, 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 is con- is like never gives him any power. She sees him basically as a rube and warms to him, but basically has that over him. He never gets one over really on Joe Pantoliano as, as Guido. Like <laughs> no. he doesn't win. And the original ending that Paul Brickman, the writer and director, wanted was he doesn't get the girl, he doesn't go to Princeton, and they shatter the egg. And the studio made them change it. I don't really? mind. Because like, it's, it's not like a thrillingly happy ending. It's just kind of like hopeful. Yes. I would say that... I can see what they wanted, but I feel yeah. like he compromised. Yeah. Because I don't look. I didn't look at this ending. This ending did not feel like completely happy, especially no. as we're talking right now and about the point of view on capitalism at the time. He doesn't end with him walking away with the girl and like, great, now I'm going to college. It ends with them having the same um, discussion about yeah. money that they did in the first time they were together. Yes. And like, <laughs> and like, I, I think that uh, knowing what he wanted that ending to be, which is like, oh, okay, like. The, the, this character is not being rewarded for being come up, becoming a high school pimp. He doesn't get <laughs> anything that he wants or needs. I think that helps me accept where it ended up, where the movie ended up. Because okay, I think that's good. That that helps minimize that. Is this just a white male suburban fantasy? And I don't think it is. And I think he's even playing with that white male suburban fantasy. The first time De Mornay uh, uh, and Tom Cruise have sex. She like walks in. He walks up to her. It's completely uh, dialogueless. He comes up behind her. Her clothes just fall off, and literally, wind blows the doors open, and the and the the drapes start billowing. But it's not square, lame, or laughable because this Tangerine Dream soundtrack is playing it straight. Yeah, and I think it's telling us two things: the same one, like, yeah, look at this. This is we know that this is an insane male fantasy. And then two, I think it's saying this isn't our world. This is a heightened version of 1983 America because things happen in this movie that are just off something that you would fully accept. And I think stuff like that helps you go along with this. In the same way in John Hughes movies, tons of things happen that you're like, oh, okay, this is a heightened version of teenage America. Well, so now Brickman's giving us a heightened version of teenage white America with showing you all the dark parts of it. And showing you how much of it uh, – again, I bounce all over because I, I have so many thoughts on this movie. No, it's great. How much 1983 white suburban America is only about money. I think there's a crucial scene early on. And the movie takes its time to get get to the fucking – it gets there, but it, it takes its time. It's a very patient, yeah, slow, deliberate sort – of like, Okay, nerdy, nerdy white kids, nerdy white kids, and then the fucking starts. But like before <laughs> that – like there's a scene where Joel and all his buddies, Curtis Armstrong and Brunson Minshew and a couple other guys are all sitting around this table in this restaurant. And they're all talking about what they want to do with their future. And they're all like, I want to uh, – they all just say I want to make money. They mm-hmm. all just – capitalism, we want to make money, we want to make money. And then it cuts back to Joel and they're like, don't you? And he says, no, I want to make a difference in the world. And then he starts laughing. And then now there's no art to this movie where he learns that making a difference in the world and, and, and helping your better man is the right thing. The movie ends with like, no, no, no. These kids of the 80s, this is what their goals are, and that is not going to change. I think that scene sets up where the rest of the movie goes of this is what their parents have instilled in them. This is what the culture has instilled with them. Uh, and so everything that comes after that in this movie stems from that 
seemingly minor scene. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, they, they his friends immediately, he laughs and they make fun of him for yep. that idea. But then where the film goes, you end up, even throughout this crazy premise of that I'm a high school pimp now, he gets in a sort of out of the clear. Mm-hmm. But his mom still is upset about the most minor bullshit. Yeah. Tiny <laughs> little thing. Crack. And, and that just to me is like a symbol of like, oh, that just means like wealth to you. Yeah. And there's a uh, element to it where, like, there are people who say to him that this is wrong. There are people who not as scolds. I don't think the movie takes the position that, like, wouldn't it be awesome when you were 16 if you could have your house be a brothel for a weekend? Because Curtis Armstrong from Revenge of the Nerds, who plays a really great character in this, he starts off and you're like, okay, you're the bad influence friend. And there's a running theme of sometimes you got to say what the fuck. And he says that to Tom Cruise's character. About halfway through the movie, uh, Tom Cruise is trying to convince him to help go find uh, Rebecca De Mornay, uh, Lana, because she stole this like crystal egg from him. Uh, and Tom Cruise parrots that back to him. He says, "Well, you you say it yourself. You know, somebody's gonna say what the fu- fuck." And Curtis Armstrong basically goes, "I didn't think you were listening to me. That's stupid. I, no, that's not a way to live your life." And by the end, I think the last time you see Curtis Armstrong is at this big prostitution party. And they're in the backyard, and he just says to him, like, I don't have to pay for it. And you see that he's basically saying, like, no, this is wrong. And this guy that they set up is, like, he's the crazy wild one who's, like, first, like, introduced the idea of calling a prostitute has now become this voice of reason at the end as this chaos mm-hmm. breaks out. And it, and he still he pulls out a pipe. It's a weird joke. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't club you over the head of, like, look at this arc. It's just being, like, no, no, no. Like, this is crazy what's happening. And all these people are wrapped up in it, but Armstrong was there to kind of go, like, uh, let's talk about the morals of this, even if it's ever so brief. Yeah, I would agree with that. I thought he is an under – this was one of those roles that I thought he was an underrated actor. Yeah. Like, because we've all known him as Booger and all those bigger roles. And this, I was like, oh, you're something – you knew what you were doing. It's just you kind of got stuck in that corner. But, yeah, like, those little subtle changes, too, makes that character far more – Dimensional. Yeah, it doesn't take the, the – there's only a couple characters that are pretty one-dimensional. One is Lana's, like, best prostitute friend whose name I can't remember, Victoria. <laughs> Victoria She's yeah, Victor- pretty thinly drawn. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then – but, like, even his parents, even Joel's parents, they take pains to show they aren't shrill. They aren't shrews. They aren't no fun. They call him during the middle of this party, and the dad goes, I think he's got a girl. And the mom just shrugs, like, who cares? Yeah, he's a teenager. Like – there's still the element when the dad's mad, the mom kind of is the good guy to Joel. And when the mom's mad, the dad kind of is like, it'll be okay. They love this kid, and they don't realize this pressure they're putting on him. But it's not – again, John Hughes would make an easier choice. When everyone in Sixteen Candles are forgetting Molly Ringwald's birthday, that's a very broad, would not happen in real life. These are real parents. These are parents you can recognize, and that makes that movie way more – powerful to me even though it has these dream elements mm-hmm. which i want to go t- b- back to is like i think too i also think it was smart they start in a dream sequence yeah. that's already gearing you up to like oh this is the normal fantasy so when that moment came when she lana comes over the first time yep. it weirdly is like you're buying it even at the same time because you're like yeah sometimes your fantasies do come true yeah it but then the next morning is when it shifts to show, like, your fantasy also 
comes with yeah. everything else. You don't you don't get to wake up from this now. And, and the, yeah, the, the movie like makes you with those fantasy sequences makes you doubt stuff you're watching. Sometimes there's a great, I think, very funny sequence in the middle where uh, it's like uh, Tom Cruise is like lying in bed alone. And it goes into this sort of fantasy sequence. And he's hooking up with his babysitter, and then like the SWAT team arrives outside, and his parents and her parents, and they all just keep yelling, "Get off the babysitter!" Uh, and it's as if he's like doing this like this weird sexual guilt he feels shown not told uh is is funny and it plays great but it also helps you get into what this kid's head is and like again like tom cruise i don't think has ever and will never again play a dork to this level like he is not cool and they go through great strains of when when he's trying to look cool like he doesn't look cool he's a dork and that makes me buy him there. He's so charismatic, but he's still – he's in this Young Enterprisers Club, which I guarantee is basically there for – oh, it's Young Republicans. You know, he's, he's Reagan, Reagan world, uh, and that's what he is. It's all about just these dorky things. There's nothing cool about this guy, and yet this movie spins out of that, and he, I believe he never gets cool. Uh, no, he puts he puts on the clothes of a cool yeah. kid. He never does mm-hmm. get cool. He never pulls off the sunglasses. Like, yeah. like he's always wearing these like Ray-Bans. And with a cigarette hanging out of his lip, but it, his shaggy haircut and his pre-nose job nose, like, he doesn't work it right. Like, now, I think, 30 years later, you go, like, oh, that's, that's like, nostalgic cool. But I, I think probably at the time, that didn't look cool. Uh, it looked like a nerd's version of cool, and I think that yeah. helps sell that, that character. And that's what, like, was so convincing, too, is to watch the people he was selling to. Why it would be like I was like oh I'll buy this yeah because he you you're all you're doing is selling to the nerd kids that yeah. don't date yeah like I love that when he, in the narration when he was talking to the the fat kid with the young kid which mm-hmm. I was like as soon as I saw the young kid I was like I hope that kid's not <laughs> <laughs> yeah he looks so young but like I was just like you went out with so and so you wasted all this money yeah like and then um. But then who does she, does she sleep with? Yeah. And you're, we're, none of us are cool. And Only th- a cool, uncool kid could pitch it that yeah. way. <laughs> and I love the element of, like, I think that scene, which I think, uh, if we give the filmmakers the benefit of the doubt, there's one side of that where it started being like, oh, gross, you're referring to women as, like, products and uh, exist only for the purposes of sex. And I think, like, if the movie takes that stance, that's gross as fuck. I don't think the movie's taking that stance. I think the movie's going, this kid is taking that stance. Um, But the way he argues it, even now in 2016, is a way that specifically, like, economically conservative people talk about things. Like, you can hear in that exact fucking speech, you can hear Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. It's it's like you really can, except they're not talking about people. They're talking about immigrants or they're talking about the current macro economy and stuff like that. And I have to believe that's on purpose. There's so many little touches like that in the movie. The Again, in that first sex scene between Lana and Joel, one of the shots is them having sex in a chair while the um, American flag, American flag the waves on the television. <laughs> and then I think just as importantly because it's when the – TV ticks over at night when it turns off. The American flag cuts to static. Uh, and I think that's just as important as the American flag because yeah. I think it's going like, hey, this something's ending. This is something new, and we don't know what's coming after it. It might be static. And like whether or not the filmmaker uh, Brickman had that uh, uh, in, in mind with that, uh, to me, that still works. I think it's a, it's a, it's a great indictment of that sort of like you know uh, Oliver Stone's Wall Street greed. I think it just came earlier and is more interesting. 
and it's less broad because yeah. I, I could, you could look at Wall Street and it's, it's a broad statement of those ideas. Yeah, just his speech in general, even though it's iconic, it's a broad statement of like greed is good. Yeah. Whereas this is taking more of a very symbolic, yeah, and just less on the nose, like very much saying more about I th- what we're doing. Yeah, I think Brickman is daring young white dudes to identify with uh, um, Joel. And I don't think you have to be – I think you have to be a sociopath to identify with Gordon Gecko. Many people do. They're all scumbags. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but, like, I think Brickman's daring you to go, what if this is you? Because there's enough realism in who this person is and you b- believe him that he's going like, okay, wouldn't this be cool? Wouldn't this be cool? But then again, when you come back to this dude has no control in his life. Joel's pathetic, I think. Like, I think he is. Like, I, because he doesn't do really anything right. Lana is the smart one. She organizes this whole thing. He stumbles into these situations, but he's not a smooth talker. The only thing he does that's right is a car chase. And everything else he just is consistently fucking up uh, to the point where he has to buy all his furniture back at the end. Lana pulls one over on him earlier in it. And if you look at it with that original intended ending, if he doesn't get Lana, he doesn't get Princeton. That's even a bigger thing. Like He is a a, – pathetic character i think in a certain way and i think that is fascinating too i don't i think there's elements of yeah it's wish fulfillment but if you think about it this is a shitty wish what he's doing is is a is is not you don't want this um and there's a, a shot in it when uh he first calls lana where i think is, is i think it's just a stylistic touch but i love it we can talk about the direction too because it's yeah. easily directed um but he's lying in his bedroom and for no reason he has a neon sign above his bed that flashes red, and it says checks cashed. And is they're just making his bedroom a red light district hotel room. Like that's just that's just what they're doing and the visuals of it while he calls a prostitute. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I love that too because they're showing that that is kind of pathetic to me. And he's in this nice suburban home, but that doesn't mean anything. The, that red flashing checked cached light is still there even in this supposedly wholesome home yep. you can't pretend it's not there just because it's not in this dingy downtown street yeah that can come into your household mm-hmm. as quickly and like what you're saying is the director is in a sense he's putting that into the suburban home he's like yeah it's not we're not separate from this world we're part of it we're we're in a sense we're part of the, we're one of the biggest gears yeah that's fueling mm-hmm. this dark seedy world absolutely and i love that and i i like that scene too and and where he puts on the, the <laughs> yeah the, the ump mask or the catcher's yeah, the mask, ump, yeah. yeah the catcher's mask because it's so funny like i think that's a very pathetic moment because yes. In a sense, and we were comparing this a little bit of like how this movie couldn't have uh, been made today. It would be a definitely yeah. a different tone. They'd go broader. Mm-hmm. It'd be end up being like a neighbors in my yes. mind. Yeah. Um, but in that move, you're showing a pathetic character because he's not. Yeah, that phone call is not cool. Yeah. That phone call is scaring the hell out yeah. of him to make it to the point where he's, lame as fuck. Like, he's guarding himself. Yeah. And by the way, they did kind of remake this as the girl next door. Um, starring Timothy Oliphant, Elisha Cuthbert, oh, yeah. and I forget I never who the dude it. was. I think Paul Dano's in it. Uh, and it's not terrible. Um, and they just swapped out prostitution for a porn star. But it doesn't – I that movie is like – that. that's a popcorn movie. I think it has even more male gazy problems, and it doesn't say anything. I think this mm-hmm. one does say something. And I think it comes back again to the tone of this movie is fascinating. And, and Tangerine Dream is such a big part of that. 
because I, I have like this like deep seated hatred for uh, comedy music. It's why I can't watch most sitcoms. Oh yeah, because I hate it. I, I like if I need music to tell me something's a joke, it wasn't a funny joke. Uh, and this movie, it 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 sounds like Thief. They did the uh, Tangerine Dream. Yeah. did the soundtrack for Thief. I might prefer the soundtrack to Risky Business over the one to Thief, but like it doesn't let you in at all that some of this stuff is funny and it builds that world up now in most comedies and i think also to its credit at that time it's not like people put out all these like tonally interesting movies you know like comedies like there was still yes. plenty of very broad jokey comedies but this is fascinating because it works beyond that the jokes have to stand on their own and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't but there's none of that sort of like goofy silly music cues to go like laugh now huh yeah you're not mickey mousing yeah. any of it um to be like ooh, here we're gonna hit the point yeah. um weirdly this is a, a tangent on music did you did you saw the big short yes i hated the music in that movie I remember because it. it just felt like stock music that yeah i was like that would probably in my mind i'm like this would probably work in another adam mckay movie but i can't this, even remember it like i, I <laughs> wish i could remember like i just remember the casino scene some of the like it just was such tacky like yeah. jazz music that i was just like stop well and, and mckay's like a great example of like big short is obviously different definitely um, but for his other comedies which i think are very funny but you know they are capital c comedies yeah and you never believe I'm not sure those movies go out of their way to create a tone. Um, part of that's from his improv background, and part of that I think I think is absolutely by choice. Um, but a movie like this fascinates me more, and I think ages better, like because of that, um, because the, the, they Brickman invested in the tone of this film and made it a dark comedy and made it kind of grimy. It's a terrible word, but like I think there's a real edginess to this movie where you're always just a little bit uncomfortable, and you always suspect at any given moment it might stop being funny and start becoming. Yeah, and dangerous. it never gets to a point where it lets you relax. No, there's ne even from the get go. I don't think you ever feel like, well, this is going to go fine. Yeah, or this is now we're okay. You're just like you feel always like behind the corner. There's something's going to come. This isn't going to work out. Yeah, and there's something to be said too of like. Uh, Joe Pantoliano plays a, a, a Lana's pimp named Guido who basically is just the heavy in it. And going back to the idea of Joel being pathetic is there's no violence in the movie. There's a car chase and a gun gets flashed. But at the end, all he does is steal all of Joel's parents' stuff because everyone sees him as a little boy. And then he forces him to buy it back with all the money he has. And it's completely just this sort of like he has never hit him. He kind of threatens him on the phone once – or he does threaten him on the phone once. But he still – this kid is not worth beating up or shooting. And like that end when he's forced to buy back all of his parents' things and then get his buddies to put help him put it back, like I think that sort of like cashes in on that. Like this guy who's been established as kind of like a uh, severely angry, violent dude doesn't even care enough. He's just like, fine, yeah, I'm going to fucking take all your money. I think he's just – I don't even know if they're even – I think – with going off the what were um, the themes that you're you're saying this movie is exploring of like showing the, the Reaganomics and all of that, I think he's just another businessman. Yeah, I don't think he's a like, yeah. He did flash to give us a little bit of that like with the gun, the gritty world. But the way he deals with them is just like no. Yeah, this is how business is done. Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing to it. I'm if you don't have the money, you got if you want this stuff, you want it back. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that and I think it is. 
like I think they're saying that everyone in this world is driven by money. You know, this is around the time of uh, like there's a lot of union busting going on, and like it was just a lot of more, more, more. Look at this boom that we're trying to go into here, uh, and so they make they take care of every single character, express that point of view while maintaining their humanity. It doesn't even harshly judge them. It just says, "Hey, guess what? That's the that's this world now." Yeah. And I think they go that I think there's this sense of it's fucking bullshit and that sucks and that's not how human beings should treat each other. But it doesn't judge them, and no one really gets a comeuppance. Like no one really does. Like you could say maybe Joel a little bit, but like no one is like, oh, I should have been more caring, or oh, you're right, I shouldn't have worried about money. It, it that doesn't happen. But it, yeah, I don't think he gets. He doesn't get. He doesn't win or not because to me, yeah, he got all the stuff back. He got the car back. He got into Princeton, but it's all—it's all just part of now the same cycle. Yeah. It okay? Maybe it's not now prostitution in your house, but what it is is like you still have to pay for college. You're just, you're just part of the grind. It's just yeah. all part of the same cycle of like we just keep making money. Yep. There's really no happiness to any of these people. Absolutely it's not. It's just money. Yeah. And what they're told they have to be happy about. What Joel's told we have to be uh, getting into college, going on to this, inventing this weird memo thing with Bronson Pinchot, <laughs> like doesn't make anybody happy. And I would say even him, and I think this is why the movie works for me. I don't think the movie says that Lana makes him happy. Um, if if it was like oh and they fall in love and everything works out, I think I go like I don't know movie. I don't think the movie's saying that. I think they're together, but he's a 17-year-old or 18-year-old kid. Your 17, 18-year-old relationships don't stick together, probably especially when they're with a prostitute who's slightly older than you. So I don't think anything makes him what you would describe as movie happy. Uh, And I think the movie avoiding that, even with the happier ending that it has now, uh, uh, is, is why... I like it so much because it, it's it, it, it comes away with it's a dark it's a fairly pessimistic view of America and of capitalism and all that stuff. Definitely, yeah. It's time and what it's trying to say for the the future of America and the world in general. But I I agree with you. I don't think he makes her happy because I love and I I'm definitely a person that likes to just go off of what they're putting on in yeah. the movie. Like I'm not a huge fan of like well what didn't we see? I'm like. Yeah, we gotta go off. First, you gotta go off what you're seeing, and that last conversation before the very end, and they're the t- at the table at dinner, and you're like, "Wait, are they gonna bring up?" And he finally goes, "Did you set me up?" Yeah. And she's like, "You didn't." And the last words are, "You don't believe me." Yeah. And then the scene's over. Yep. There's no answer to that question, and you're left just to think, Maybe. "You're still going forward, but even though you don't believe him, to me, that's a business partner. Yeah. That is not a, a loving yeah, relationship. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, his seemingly best friend, uh, Chris Armstrong, is gone. Yep. He's just gone. Like, that. that's done. Bronson Pinchot and another dude who uh, maybe never gets named still come and help out. But, like, they're set, like, they, it's set up that Armstrong is the one that he's closest to, and that guy's gone. And, again, to give this movie credit, None of these moralize. It's not sort of being like, and you lost your best friend, dun, dun, dun. It's just sort of like, he's just gone. And that's just how it happened. And that's what certain decisions can can lead you to. I don't want to make this movie seem like it's like, you know, uh, uh, too much of a treatise. Uh, uh, <laughs> like to, but like it is because it's really enjoyable and at times insanely silly and really, really fun. But I think there is I, – I, you know, I, I react so positively to a comedy with something to say that also doesn't 
bludgeon you with it. Yes. Um, and I think this one falls under that. It has one of the most iconic scenes yeah. in cinema. And I where it was placed was a big surprise to me. Yeah. Because I've, it's, it's similar to like seeing – have you ever seen From Here to Eternity? Yes. You see that movie like – for years you've seen it in like retrospectives, Oscar like – Mm-hmm. Like when they show montages of oh look at all and that that scene and this scene are constantly like shown in those, but then when you finally sit down to watch the movies like from here to eternity you realize oh that's an affair yeah even though it's seen, like it's played in so many romance. retrospectives as a yeah. romance and you're like no it's an affair then in this it's so early on yeah like when you if you look at that movie without seeing it for my mind. For me, I was like, that must be coming off when he's like at the top of things. And yep. it's no, all nope. it is is his little amount of the freedom he got for yeah. a moment. It's basically a little boy <laughs> left alone in the house and yeah. he dances around. And in the movie, it's played for this is the lamest thing you've ever seen. Like, because yeah. I remember, like, I, I think it's easy to go, like, old fashioned rock and roll, that's not a cool song. What are you talking about? And then you watch the movie, like, oh, the movie knows. You know, the movie uses yeah. that song. With this great Tangerine Dream soundtrack and, and talking heads show up during the party and stuff, like all this. And like they know exactly what the song is and he's dancing around and he looks just like square as hell when he's sliding around in his socks in his underwear. And it comes – it's probably like maybe half an hour to the movie, probably yeah. less. Uh, and then it's just done. And it serves no real purpose. Either. He's just happy to have a house to himself. Yeah. And I think it, the purpose it shows is really to show that he's a child. Yeah. That he is just a child getting in into this stuff and, and then the other like sort of iconic scene from it is the train scene yeah. um which is i think like spectacularly shot and edited where uh they're having this prostitution party uh and lana tells joel she wants to have sex on a real train so they go to get on the l in chicago the 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 um the the subway there and the most of it like when you ask people who haven't seen it in a long time there's sort of like two things that people tend to remember. One is they mostly remember fucking on the train. Yeah. Uh, and two, like people's perception of it is that she's naked in the, in the scene. Like people – like if you even read about it, people talk about it like that. And I think that does – She's not at all. She's not at all. And I think the movie, again, to its credit, is most of the sequence is them waiting for the other people to get off the train. Yep. And it's really patient with that, and it builds up this tension, building, 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 until they finally have the train to themselves. And then when they finally do, it settles into this one shot. She doesn't take off her clothes. It starts sort of like doing this stuttery sort of slow-mo uh, thing, where and it's lit mainly by the lights whizzing by on the outside, and it stays in this one fairly tight two shot. Um, and that's it. And there's, I think, a couple things that are amazing about that. One is I think it's the tension of waiting that makes people think that scene is more sexual than it is. Yeah. Uh, and then, two, if you watch the actual scene, like, again, Tom Cruise looks like a dork. Like, like she is sitting on his lap. Uh, she's in control. And she's in control, and he looks like he can't believe this is happening. He does not look like he is good at sex. <laughs> yeah. No. He's not doing anything. He's sitting still, and I think that's a fascinating choice because that would be the moment where you go, in the coming-of-age story, he becomes the man that he is. And he doesn't no. like he like he it remains just as passive as he has been the whole time. Like she takes him to the train. She tells him we have to wait for these people. She's the one who like initiates and, and takes charge of this thing. I think that's I, I, I think it happens throughout the whole movie. It has to be purposeful. It has to be them oh, saying something 100%. about this character. And I love that in that moment, too, just speaking to that same idea, it's like. The only thing he can get out, and it's like um, near the climax of that scene, 
No pun intended. Yeah. Uh, but is he literally in that slow motion just like saying, oh my God? Yeah. It's like that's all you can yeah. do. You That's it. That's all you're going to offer. And, and, and then you're just completely – and in a sense, you're blind too because of – if we're going to pl- – I'm really obsessed now with like looking it through this lens of uh, Reaganomics yeah. and what it's saying about it because there's two things that happen in that sequence. That is also – it's like – you're caught up in these things and just joy of money and what's in front of you. You miss the con. Mm-hmm. You miss the con. Yep. So that's why you got all your stole, stuff stolen yeah. is because you missed the con because you're caught up in the gre- in what you want. Also, I just this is maybe this is stretching it, but <laughs> this fact that they like if we're looking at through economics and it's all about what you want. I love <clears throat> like there's a moment where that guy's like clearly like the the homeless man is yeah. like sick and he looks yeah Ill. sure. The only way that you think, oh, they're moving him off, but really, they're not helping him. They're no, just getting they him dump out of him the off way. The train. Dump him off so they can so have they what can they fuck, want. Yeah, like, yeah, that's Trump, man. Yeah, <laughs> and like it's a it's a funny gag because he's just a creepy guy who's clearly pegged what they want to do, and he just like he's this homeless guy who won't get off the train. And they cut to he's carrying, he carries him and dumps him on the bench, and then gets back on. And again, yeah, whether or not that was a purposeful comment, like. It doesn't matter now because now down the line, like, yeah, again, we're looking at Reagan's America. The idea of let's literally pick up a homeless man and throw him off the train so we can fuck on it. Yeah. That's a pretty good metaphor for Reagan's America to me. Like, that's pretty great. Oh, yeah. it's, uh, I, and I, there's another uh, – we talked about this a little bit that I, I – and again, like, that I think is remarkably – for the, in 1983 when this movie came out, uh, most comedies, certainly most like comedies oh, like about sex – would have at least one gay panic scene. Someone would get called fag or something. Yeah. It was something horribly homophobic would happen. And I would say, like, if you watch, like, The Simpsons, uh, that episode where Lisa joins Mensa and The Simpsons has a ton of jokes with a gag as they say the word she-male. And in the early 2000s, you had constant, like, in comedy, yeah. you have a man dressed as a woman. That's a, that's a gag. A transvestite is a gag. A transsexual person wasn't even a term. People knew that's a gag. And in this yeah. movie, 1983, the first prostitute that uh, Curtis Armstrong calls a prostitute as a prank on uh, Joel, on Tom Cruise, and the prostitute shows up. And they don't show, and they don't show. And when Tom Cruise opens the door, it's transsexual. Uh, it's a tra- transsexual person. And you watch this movie with knowing what things were like in the 80s, and you're like, ah, oh, fuck. Like, this is going to be gross. The entire scene doesn't play that for a joke, treats this person just like it's just a person yeah. and plays the gag off of how uncomfortable Tom Cruise is. There's no gay panic. There's no, like, can you believe a man dressed as a woman? It just says, like, yeah, these, this is a person. So – and who cares? And they're and, here to do a job. Mm-hmm. You don't want – you're clearly uh, un- un- uncomfortable with the job. And I would argue it's one of the most savvy and uh, – uh, uh, she's one of the most savvy and decent characters in the movie where doesn't get mad. Gets what's going on here. Says like, okay, you gotta pay my. It's a long cab ride home. You gotta pay me to go back. Here's the number of a girl I think you're gonna like more. Uh, and then later on, they say Joel calls her again to find out where Lana is, and she helps. Like, yeah. there's like, and that happens off screen, but they talk about it. And like, it's. I, I really think through a 1983 lens, it's stunning with how much it's a very small scene, very small character, but how awful that scene could look in 2016 terms. And how I think deeply progressive that scene is in 1983 terms. I 100% agree. She does – and he, she, she's – look at me. Yeah. I'm, I have the 2016 mind still. Yeah. <laughs> but 
She's a very decent character because yeah. she never takes control of it. She never manipulates Joel yeah. either. She's just like – she's sympathetic to him. Yeah. The, she realizes, all right, you're, yeah. you're a dumb, weak kid, but I'm not going to – like I'm not going to try to get anything from you other yeah. than like, hey, what I'm due, yeah. and, and then I'm out of here. And I, I think – I, I didn't really notice that until I rewatched it fairly recently. Um, but I, I again, like the the historical era this movie came out in – Combined with that, I would love to know how that scene played in 1980. Because it's very possible audiences lost their mind at just seeing uh, a, a, a male in heels. It, maybe, yeah. they, maybe they went, oh, my God, this is the funniest thing in the world. We're a bunch of Neanderthals. Um, but the mo- I don't think the movie plays it that way. And, again, I don't know why I feel like I'm ragging on John Hughes so much. But, like, put a character like that in a John Hughes movie and you're going to have a long duck dong treatment. Of a trans person. Yes. And it's going to be real fucking ugly. And this one uh, – and, and Brickman doesn't do that. He doesn't treat her that yeah. way. I would say to speak for him as the director and the writer as well that even if they knew that that was going to get a laugh, a guy in a dress, they decided to be – they were smart enough to go, that's enough. That's yeah. all we need. Yeah. Even maybe – like now, I, we don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. But at least they were the smart directors to be like, no, that's all we need, and then the scene can play it be more. Yeah, and because I mean that, that was there, there were so like the idea, gay people don't come out looking great in early '80s comedies mm-hmm. made by yeah. straight men. Like they they really come out there, and in thrillers, there are plenty of. Uh, is it a uh, cruising with Al Pacino? Yeah. Like uh-huh. like there there. I mean that was. Like it's just monstrous the degree to which they were mixed, like they were constantly equated with horrible things. And for this movie that's ostensibly about prostitution to a include that character uh, even for that little bit, and b to be like no 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 this is a this is a human being this is a person is it, like I, that buys me so much from the movie standpoint of going okay, I think you're aware of most of these things that I'm hoping are true in this movie because that is a distinct choice. I guarantee there were notes coming back on that. And they were like, no, 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 this is the way it's going to be. Oh, yeah, there's no no way that they didn't have to deal with that yeah. stuff. But th- as you said, I think this director and writer did it very savvy. Yeah. The whole movie, uh, I think, is savvy throughout the entire thing. Again, why I'm, I'm kind of perplexed. I almost feel like I want to watch it immediately again because it wasn't what... And I think it's just because I've only seen those iconic scenes yeah. or, or heard, like I was telling you earlier, like how my dad's, like, I remember asking about this movie when I was younger. And my yeah. dad just going like, no, we're not watching that. It's about prostitution. And you're just, like, shutting it down. And now I'm like, I want to know, do my dad ever really see this movie or not? <laughs> yeah. Uh, because I'm, I was very, like, just like, wait, this isn't at all what I expected this movie to be. Yeah. Especially the era it was coming from, who it's starring. I was just expected something completely different and i I think like i i think there's a it's easy to lose you watch the underwear scene uh that doesn't prepare you for how interestingly this movie is directed Mm -hmm. like there's a major sequence where the camera is tom cruise and his parents are constantly talking to camera and you hear his voice but you as the viewer are joel i think that's like a incredibly important scene to like sort of like set up what he's say, saying there but it's just like really beautifully shot it uses Chicago at night in a really lovely way and where a lot of times you could just shoot it in a standard way Brickman was 
moving the camera in more interesting angles, moving around, shooting stuff that you wouldn't normally expect him to shoot to cover the scene. And I think that is really neat too. And again, like I go back to that flashing checks cash sign. Mm-hmm. Like that's that, that's some real like noir style that they're throwing in there. You know, like that it's almost Michael Mann. That scene. Oh, it's very um, much like it's even it's old like it reminds me a bit of uh, Vertigo. Yeah, the room at the hitch on her yeah. apartment. And I, I think that it's like I, I think there's I think it is very well written. I think the dialogue is really fun without being like quippy. Um, but I think it is the direction and what he does with the camera that really makes it go. No, no, this isn't just like a teen sex romp. This is something different. This is a movie that exists to be taken seriously. It's a shame that Tom Cruise sliding around in his underwear has kind of become the like the the bookmark for this. Yeah. Because I would say that is a scene that is most unrepresentative of the movie, probably. I'm trying to think of 100%. something else that would stick out quite as much. I'm I'm, I'm not sure there is. I think that mo- that scene is it works in the context of the movie because of what a sore thumb it is. Yeah. And I think also because of what Tom Cruise became. Yeah. Like if you – I could see if Tom Cruise had not become the star he'd become and this would just – I mean maybe he was just more of like weirdly like a Bruce Dern kind of actor. Yeah. Then that would never have become yeah. the the placeholder Yeah, for it's it. fun because it's Tom Cruise. So yeah. Gets, oh, it's okay, like, oh, yeah. look, he's young and he's sexy. And, but what is he – yeah. And it was kind of the birth of uh, quote-unquote Tom Cruise. This movie was yeah. where people went – Holy shit! Can that person carry a movie? Yeah, his charisma in this is even playing off the, door. the charts. Yeah, you just want to watch him do what? Like he is. Yeah. So even like, there are these insane shots where they just hold on him for too long. Like there's this line where it's like, "What well, is the University of Illinois?" Like yeah. Where it's like, I don't know if you're uh, a Princeton material, and he stands up, looks to camera with these dumb sunglasses, looks like it's University of Illinois, and then they hold on him for another ten seconds while he makes a goofy face. You expect it to be a freeze yeah, frame. It's <laughs> insane, and you're like, I don't care. This guy has got he's got something. It. He yeah. really truly does. To talk about him, like. I think it's amazing that even through his weird, uh, like, life ups and downs, I still find him as charismatic as ever. Yeah. It's insane to me. I think his – I think the bummer is, uh, for whatever reason, I don't want to be sued, but if there were, say, an organization that was helping him make (laughs) decisions, maybe some of the projects they were directing him towards weren't interesting. Because when he does on Edge of Tomorrow or whatever they call it, Live, Die, Repeat or whatever – Yeah. That was the best use of Tom Cruise in years and years and years and yep. years because he's playing in the first act almost a parody of himself of just, hey, you know what, like I don't get my hands dirty, but I'm super smug and I can and everyone loves me and I'm all charm. And then he goes to war and he keeps dying and stuff. And he is I, I didn't love the ending of that movie, but up until probably about like the third act, like I was like, Holy shit, he's killing it in this movie because that's interesting because it doesn't it didn't feed into what is probably part his ego and part what the people around him tell him yeah like now at this point even though i I enjoy the mission impossible movies it is what someone is telling him cool dudes do right cool dudes ride motorcycles and like really do their own stunts cool dudes do this and you go i don't i'm enjoying this but i would love to see, I would love to see him do DiCaprio's part in Django. Oh, like that, that's where I want to see him start doing because he has a great, 
an insane number of tools, and they're just being, I think, probably dulled down. Uh-huh. They've been dulled down for several For a years. long time. And every now and then when they pop out, you're like, oh. I prefer him, weirdly, like in this one, he's more of a loser. Whenever they try to force uh, Tom Cruise as a character that I'm supposed to be sympathetic, yeah. I immediately lose a lot of interest. Yeah. Like, for example, Last Samurai. I'm supposed to be sympathetic for this character, and I immediately am like, no, I don't want to be. Yeah. You put him in a role like Color of Money. Yep. And I, he's the asshole, and, you, and, you, and I'm like, you're doing everything right. Yeah. <laughs> you're perfect. And I, it's, it's, it's a flawed movie, too, uh, and I think it aged poorly. But in Jerry Maguire, like, again, there's deep threads of patheticness in that. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and it's, again, it's him at his most, like, here's what people think of him, and then he gets taken down, and then he builds that back up. And that's, again, that movie, I think, without Tom Cruise, is a zero. I think it doesn't land. I think you I think need right. someone to sell that smugness and to sell then dealing with what happens when that goes away. And a very few actors can pull that off without parodying or, cause he just is whatever, you know, bubble he lives in. Yeah. He hasn't, he hasn't reached that weirdly. He's been able to keep on the fence of not going over the top. Like someone like Christopher Walken. Yeah. Where you're like, now you really are just parodying yeah. yourself. I'm 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 fascinated to see what Tom Cruise what an old man Tom Cruise does. It's either going to be honestly full on Michael Jackson. He's le- he's left the planet. He's crazy. Or I think he's going to swing around to doing interesting projects again because I think the place he is now you can't stay in, and no. age tends to give you some perspective. And I think again, if any groups or religions just want were like, just if just like let's say he was a baptist uh the baptist yeah. church was controlling his image <laughs> that falls apart as he gets older and oh, yeah. the and he is weathering it better than travolta i'd say i think like i hope so because travolta is, is not handling aging that well cruz is fighting aging off as hard as he can but at a certain point you lose that battle uh and i i want to see him as a 60 year old person not doing action movies and not trying to pretend he's 30 still yeah. but instead being in things and finding the humanity because he can do it he's he's a great movie he's star. sick of that like because right now we're going through this weird which I, I i haven't seen most of the movies so i can't be a full judge of it but like things like the intern or dirty grandpa yeah. where it's like old. Oof. we're gonna show you that old is this weird thing of like it can still be young but in a real Broadway. Yeah. Whereas if you take someone, I'm like, what happens if you still are you're older but you still have that charisma? Yeah. That's going to be in that vulnerability. You say you can play. That's going to be super interesting. He picks the right role to yeah. show that. And and you're right. That is the cautionary tale. It's it's it's, it's not Travolta. It's De Niro. De Niro's the who, one that I'm just like. Yeah. It's it's, it's like heartbreaking. He did the score and then everything decided to be bad yeah. after that. Truly, truly heartbreaking. I don't know if he's lost track of it. He doesn't care. He needs money or whatever it is. But like he doesn't do good work anymore. I could see the Cruz last good thing he did was Silver Linings Playbook, and I didn't even like Silver Linings Playbook, but, but he was good in it. But he was good very in good it. in it, yeah. Uh, and he's like, it, that breaks my heart, and I hope that Cruz avoids it. I hope it doesn't become okay. Here's the deal, Tom. Uh, it's like a Tom Cruise character, but now he's old, right? So we get whoever the Channing Tatum of 2025 is, uh, and we put you together, you know, like. And I, I don't, don't want to see it. that. He doesn't. And I hope someone lets him know he doesn't need yeah. that. And what I think he can do, and I didn't love this movie, which might be why I'm picking it, but like, I'm more interested in seeing him picking Bridge of Spies down the line, whatever the equivalent of that yeah. is. Even though I found that movie to be not great, I didn't but see like that yet. he. 
that's the base minimum of what I want him doing because I'm like, great, you can do work there. It's not like that. That's you can become something there, and I think there's the potential for him to have like a really great third act to his career, where if he finds someone that helps him pick interesting projects and interesting people to work with, like I would, him with a Ryan Johnson in something would be fascinating to me. Like yeah. you know, like like that would. I don't know what that would look like or some director that really has if you could get him one person maybe in his old like someone like an alexander payne too yeah exactly that can really bring a role to him that like he's actors directors yeah. yeah and and then stop punching things stop trying to look cool stop going on every talk show saying like he does his own stunts i, I get it that's all fine that's I, I like that mission Impossible movie but i liked it i liked yeah. the last one a lot but yeah. it's like it's still if you could throw us now to the other side it would be and start playing bad guys start playing people that aren't movie stars of a di- in a different career which is also one of the reasons I think like um, in Magnolia in his scenes he is so good as that basically A they predicted men's right activism yeah. um, <laughs> yeah. and B like he is so good because he's using that charisma to expose something dark mm-hmm. uh, and I, he's got that in him and, I, and I'd love to see more of that I hope he gets that chance yeah and, Rebe- and not to d- diminish what Rebecca De Mornay brings to the movie, which is she is the misfortune of being her, in a movie her, with young. Because her career didn't really take off, right? She worked a bunch. She still does. Uh, she does, but it's like the only thing I can off the top of my head that I know she's in is The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Yeah, she's That's the, the only thing that I feel and, bad and we had talked about. That's We talked while I was on about the TV movie version of The Shining. Yes. Where, uh, which is horrible casting. <laughs> um, and, and she works regularly. I think – Maybe the the rumblings are she's not the easiest person to work with. I okay. think she's maybe a little little not that Tom Cruise is, but the um like I think that's part of it. But she, I think she's in this movie. She keeps so much behind her eyes, and she keeps so much subtext. And you, tr- I don't, I think you truly never know whether or not to believe her. Uh, I and I think there's threat in everything she does, not physical, but there's she's smarter than anyone else on screen. And because of her position and because she, is, she doesn't get to be like she doesn't get to, she doesn't flash that and everyone underestimates her. Everyone doesn't assume mm-hmm. that's wrong. And, and I think it, it does a more interesting job than, say, like pretty woman's hooker with a heart of gold. Yeah, this is more interesting. There's something else I don't even going think it's a hooker there. with a heart of gold. No, no. It's, a, it's a it's a a hooker is a business. Yeah, a businesswoman. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. It's someone that goes, this is my trade. I know how to I know how to work it on every angle. Yeah, it's and a it, strong female lead. that just the unfortunately the movie itself doesn't put it. It is not following that. Yeah, it's it's following Cruz, and so you don't oh you don't often get to see into her sort of window. There's one scene where she starts to do open a little bit, and she says that like okay, she left home because her stepfather was uh, uh, coming on to her, mm-hmm. which I actually think is. I'm, I'm glad it's that and not like, oh, I was abused. It's like yes. it was headed that way and I got out. She has a brother that goes to call. It's not sort of like I was born on the street. It's a different story. And then the second you start to – you think you're going to hear it, she cuts it off. And they never come back to it. Nope. Like it's it's like it's interrupted by a car sh- going into uh, the lake, into Lake Michigan, mm-hmm. and then somehow getting a bunch of trout in it based on when they open the doors. <laughs> yeah. Um, Which I was like, weren't those windows open? Yeah. And <laughs> – also, like, why didn't they open the doors when they pulled it out? Why'd they wait until they went into the garage? All right, everyone, watch your feet. I just got on the truck and opened it up. Yeah. Leave the water at the lake. Yeah. Um, but, like, there's – it doesn't f- 
fully let you in and it leaves a lot of mystery to her. Part of that, I think, is, again, like a noir femme fatale thing, but also part of it is, I think, that no one in the movie, be it um, Joel, be it Guido, be it anybody, knows where she comes from or knows her experiences as the main female role. And I think that is interesting and and again, I give this movie a lot of credit. I think it is also purposeful, and it might not be, but it, like I, I think, uh, I, I think this movie has a lot to say about a lot of these characters, and I think that is conscious because there's a lot of easy choices it could have made that it doesn't, um, mm-hmm. and the avoidance of those, the avoidance of oh, it's a hooker with a heart of gold, the avoidance of some sort of like pat happiness or pat backstory, yeah, uh, makes me think that it was very purposeful. I think so, and I and I'm seeing it. M- much more right now through this conversation through that again I've said it already before that that Reaganomics and that's where I'm like oh I can see now that yeah why there's so many deliberate choices it's not just oh we happen to like that was just the dialogue we had you yeah. know what I mean no and it's again like for a con again like tone man like you know obviously I'm all for improv I love improv so I don't watch a lot of comedies because most of the time I find them kind of boring and because they don't go for an interesting tone and this one did but I still contend there are moments in here with improv like there's a shot where it's Bronson Pinchot the nameless friend and Tom Cruise trying to put the house back together and they're just putting these little they're in a rush and they're putting these little figurines on the shelf and it's just Bronson Pinchot talking about how he thinks Tom Cruise's mom has organized it wrong and you should keep the centuries together No, and I just I suspect it's not written I suspect they're just like okay this will probably be MOS we'll shoot without sound but we'll just talk whatever we'll roll on it and then he was funny and they left it in and it doesn't ruin the tone but also like because it, it fits with the tone that they're going yeah. for and I, I see so many movies now that like, like oh that is a funny line and it totally yanked me out because it doesn't fit with what's happening because the they're not the director's not consistent they're going for a j- the laugh yeah. over like what's really fit because that probably was it's funny but it, it, the way it's performed and everything is yeah. so it doesn't exit what we've already had, right. had established yeah. and again like not every movie has to have this like I'm not dark and gritty tone like Ghostbusters is oh, another yeah. I think great movie that has a very specific tone like when the ghosts all get out and it's I believe in magic right? like that that weird song comes on like that's really tonally weird for the middle of a comedy yeah and you I, I actually even though that one has ghosts and this one does not I kind of equate the two in my head of being like the New York of Ghostbusters isn't the New York of our world it's very close but even without even if you remove the ghost, it's just different enough. And I think it's the same thing here of the America of Risky Business is just mm-hmm. a heightened version of the America of nineteen eighty three. And I think those are things I get to draw into. Tootsie's another one that I hadn't seen until fairly recently. Oh, I just yeah. missed it. And I think it's the same thing where, okay, you accept this big lie that no one notices this, but it's a slightly heightened version of our world. And when we say slightly, we mean very, very slightly. All the dark parts of the world are still in these movies. But then you jump over to most modern-day big-budget comedies, and the dark parts of the world have been completely sanded out. Oh, I, they become gone. uninteresting. Yeah. And, and any darkness becomes a broad joke that has no comment or anything – or no consequences. Yeah. Like a movie like this, like you can find what's funny, but then I'm like there are consequences to what people are doing. Absolutely. Even yeah. in a comedy, and that's – that's good. Yeah. Tangerine Dream, man. Yeah. What also, what's his name? What's the actor? The guy that's Balky? <laughs> Bronson Pinchot. I wish that guy didn't disappear because I think he was, this movie, he's, it's one of those ones you're like, why weren't you like 
in more stuff that yeah. I don't know. Because you saw, like you knew how to act, but you're also funny in the way you're not distracting. I wonder if it was just like he got stuck with Perfect Strangers and people thought that's that what it was. Beverly Hills Cop. Beverly Hills Cop, which again, by the way, Beverly Hills Cop was probably like, what, 86, 85? Yeah, I think around like there, yeah. Uh, and again, like going back to what we were saying before, Bronson Pinchot's gay character in Beverly Hills Cop is big. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Like it's that, outrageous. And that was like the norm. This comes out before with the trans character uh, that they choose normal being being. I think that's fascinating. But yeah, he is so, like, he's has a role that's almost nothing in this movie and he makes he lands his lines well, yeah. like it really really he's doesn't really have much of an arc and he's just sort of a friend but he's just like really fun to watch on screen yeah. and you kind of believe these boys' friendships um they they have a very natural way of talking um Curtis Armstrong and the other two guys too that feels like yeah you know what even though they're all clearly not 17 i i i buy them yeah, I bought them as as friends and as younger. I loved the part where he, when all the prostitutes were coming into the house, yeah. and he kept trying to close the door. Yep. That was like... Classic Bugs Bunny was, gag. Yeah, it was so silent, but it was so funny. Yep. And you just let us enjoy that. Very, very... Like, like, there are a lot of, like... I think that's where I keep coming back to the John Hughes stuff. Like, very just... That was just a little scene, a little visual gag, and they throw a ton of those. The fish coming out of the car this is all it is, is like a that's, gag. that's a stupider comp. That's you know, I mean, like that's a uh, National Lampoon's Vacation gag, basically. Yeah. Um, it doesn't ruin this. It doesn't take me out of this movie because they're going like, no, no, this is a comedy, and silly things happened, and it's a heightened. But again, if a guy flashes a gun at you, that's bad news. And again, like, it, we're not sandblasting the fact that the world we're talking about here, this suburban kid. You know, he has his problems, but we're deeply hinting that on this other side of the city, there's real problems. And we're not even going to really show it because he doesn't even see them. Joel never even understands them. And no. I think the movie takes his perspective. So it's like, yeah, the movie doesn't show them to you either. But the movie does go, but they're there. You don't, you know, they are absolutely there. Uh, and then you get fish falling out of a car and that makes it be like, oh, okay, I can laugh at this. Oh, and yeah, then buy I'm back fine. In. I'm safe. I'm yeah. safe with Joel. Yeah. And you're like, no, we're just idiots like Joel. Yeah. I think it's fun that like, I know we've talked about Thief a couple times, but it's funny how, like, somebody like, uh, you're going to have to repeat his name again, that stands out, uh, the friend. Oh, my Bronson God. Pinchot? Why You've said that name <laughs> now probably over ten times, and I can't remember it. It's a great name to remember. It's such a good name. <laughs> yeah, Bronson yeah. Pinchot. Pinchot. Uh, he reminds me of also um, Jim Belushi, or not Jim Belushi. Is it John? Which one's the one? No, it's, it's Jim, right? Jim yeah. Belushi and Thief. Yeah. How it's like, man, you just... The people that cast you guys were so dead on yeah. to cast you as these side characters that, yeah, they're not going to pull focus, but man, you'll li- you you, you'll exist and you'll add to the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what was great about this. The whole movie, I thought everybody's casting. Even the parents felt like real like eighties parents yep. that were like, "Yeah, you don't get what's going on." It does. I, I just, I truly believe this movie doesn't really take many shortcuts. Um, I, I think you can connect every single dot to a certain degree, which is the, said to the strength of the both the writing and the characterization of like uh, you know it's not like well it's time for the third act so we got to have something go wrong something does yeah. go wrong going in that third act but it doesn't just kind of happen the movie lulls you into we've forgotten about Joe Pantoliano and he comes back mm-hmm. and he knows they've already established he knows where the house is and all this sort of stuff you don't know if De- Rebecca De Mornay is in on like yeah. there's all these little flashes that just really keep this as a cohesive whole and I think like it really holds up to like repeat watching and 
it's one of those movies that I think is is funny and fun and has something to say and kind of off putting at times, but in oh, a way yeah. it's good. Uh, we were I wanted to talk briefly about how we were talking about how a movie like this could not be made. Yeah. Um, because we were saying like the tone because I feel like we're saying comedy in a sense is now had to be like in its own compartment completely mm-hmm. as well as like a movie like this if it even got close to being made would be probably put into like a gritty indie yeah it would have to be a very small movie that came out of like Sundance or TIFF or something like that you know what I mean like it, it mm-hmm. would be you wouldn't be able to get I don't think a, a studio to, to make this, this for several reasons one like those big macro of like this movie's got no legs overseas you know like it's yeah. not gonna do that you're not making a sequel to it uh, it doesn't have stars in it. I mean, now we can go, well, Tom Cruise, but at the time he had, like, Outsiders and Taps, I think. Like, maybe that was it. Yeah. Um, and comedies now, like, I, I, I really think in a weird way, like, the de- definition of comedy has contracted to this weird, rigid, it has to be Paul Feig or it has to be Apatow or it has to be uh, McKay. And, and I like what all of them do, but I just don't necessarily buy that. Let's say studio comedies. Yes. Um, and I think that there is room for movies like this, uh, but you would never be able to get this. because you. And, and if you read about it, at the time, the same concerns were there. There were lots of concerns of like uh, people just not getting the tone, and is it funny enough, and like are the jokes landing hard enough? So it's not like it was a golden age for darkly atmospheric prostitution comedies. But uh, <laughs> it now, I think those they would just trump everything. Those um, complaints, and it would be like, okay, well, we're gonna have another writer take a pass on this, and all of a sudden, it's gonna become just a sex comedy. And I, I don't think that yeah. this is. Um, I think it makes you think it's going to be. And then it's an absolutely not a yeah. sex comedy. And then combined with it being a movie about, I, I think, you know, uh, 1983, Reagan's America, um, I think all that would get pared away. Well, it's about prostitution and sex. Like, don't make it – that's confusing to people, you know. I think you wouldn't be able to have this sort of level of layer, this sort of level of uh, director's vision in shooting it. You would, he almost never uses coverage in a comedy now. Like, they would be way more over-over shots uh, just so that they could worry about it in the edit. And this yeah. feels like a movie that was – he knew what he was doing with each specific shot. Oh, 100%. I liked that he – it was very – I like seeing a movie, period, that I know there's not a lot of – when I can tell there's not coverage. Yeah. Or you don't get the traditional setups that you learned in fucking film school. Yeah. Because as soon as I see that, I'm like, I'm immediately like bored. And comedies are the ones that fall down that uh, sort of hole the quickest. Um, part of that's because you want to be able to mix takes, and and if there is an improv element, well, there's no, you got to. Um, but like yeah. this movie, because of the content, because it is ma- saying something political, uh, uh, and again, like you know, there's there's boobs and, and a decent number of sane fucks in it. Um, so that would all get pared away because it'd be like, well, maybe we can do PG-13. I just can't imagine a, a, a movie like this being released anything beyond the like, oh, have you heard about this movie? This is going to be kind of good. Yeah. You know, I just I just can't imagine that happening. What do you think has been the, the closest film that to this that in mm. the last, I don't know, My gosh. five, ten years? I wonder if well I, I want maybe this is longer than ten years ago. There's elements to this when I see movies that like kind of came out of nowhere and I think were fairly fully formed. I would I would even though it was not a comedy, I would say Brick 
um, mm-hmm. is one that was like, okay, Ryan Johnson had a vision and somehow got to make it, but again, I don't think that certainly wasn't a studio thing. Yeah. I'm trying to think of comedies that, that you know, I, I would say, again, totally different genre and it not American, Attack the Block. Um, oh, yes. Would be one that uh, came out. Because it's it's, it has its comedy elements, but it yeah. definitely is a commentary about mm-hmm. – um, the way those about class, class and race, and, yep. and it's and it's a fully formed world that they're building there. Um, I'm a big, uh, uh, and obviously he's connected to that about. I'm a big Edgar Wright fan, but that's a little bit yeah. different because he's doing, he's playing in genre in a way that this doesn't. You know, like yeah. and so I, I'm trying to think of just a straight up American comedy. I don't know if I, 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 have, I don't and know if I, I weirdly, have one. I'm similar to you. I haven't seen a lot of them because I'm always usually going to the other. Other films, other than you know what? This is yeah. a better movie. Uh, Burn after reading, yeah. Coen Brothers, because that was attacking the Bush era of America. Yeah, and, uh, the, and all the watchful eye, but really yeah. not knowing what you're doing. Yeah, it was goofier than this, um, but I, I would say that that starts to do some of this same stuff. I think uh, I, I saw recently Hail Caesar. I, I think that is also, but like that's a little more style, it's a little more genre. Um, but I think Burn After Reading is one where they're creating that world for us. Um, and I totally it's see that, comedy. especially every scene with the FBI is yeah. brilliant and yeah. funny, and how they're what they're co- they're clearly making a point. Yeah, but what they're saying about U.S. government in those scenes, absolutely. But it, it's very hard to yeah, it is. It's really hard to find because like you have to go to a director like Cohen's who are in the power of make. Because like even inside Lou Allen Davis is like we're gonna say something, but you they have be so far up yeah and now i feel like a lot of comedies coming out of even in the independent era feel like they're trying to be we're going to scale it down for our budget but really they're trying to be bigger budget comedies and i'm not seeing a lot of or there's probably exceptions i don't know about but and there's a ton of um it's just about a relationship and the foibles of how hard it is and especially if you extend it to tv you know like uh there's no White dude's midlife crisis that will go unturned, unturned, you yeah. know, unturned. Like we're gonna see it all, like because it's just constantly like, oh man, I'm 45 and maybe this is what. Uh, okay. Who cares? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, like that is fine. Sure, I like some of those movies. Sure, but like you, th- this, and it, you know what? It's very possible in 15 years we'll be able to look back and see a 2016 aesthetic that yeah. rose that we weren't able to see while we were in it. In the same way that this looks like, uh, I think, Risky Business feels like a movie from 1983. I think it's timeless in some ways. But you're also like, yeah, that's 1983. Maybe at the time they couldn't see that. And now yeah. – so, like, who knows? Something might come out this year that we're like, oh, I really like that. And we don't realize how of now it is until down the line. I would absolutely accept that. But from within the moment, it's very hard for me to imagine something like that. But I think it is hard for us, too, because we're both tr- – in our sense, we're all trying to create, too. Yeah. So I think it's doubly hard for us. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Because you're like, well, I want to make something that says th- these things, these elements, but at the same time, you're it's an uphill battle. Also. Sure, yeah. Cool. Uh, I don't think I, – I think we covered a lot. Great. There's probably still the more that we could cover because yeah. this movie, again, very surprising in the tone that this took, and it was enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Fernie, for spending your afternoon with me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks to Deborah for hiding in the bedroom with the dogs. Yeah, kept them quiet. Yeah, thought they were going to be a real nuisance, but they were nice. Oh, they're good dogs. They're really good dogs. Yeah, they just Thanks. jingle jangle.
Thank you for listening to I Will Watch Anything Once. If you want more from Alex Fernie, you can follow him on Twitter at Fernie, comma, Alex. It's all spelled out, F-E-R-N-I-E-C-O-M-M-A-A-L-E-N-I-E. Alex, comma, Fernie. Also, he is a wonderful and amazing improviser. You can see him at Upright Citizens Brigade Weekly with Convoy, which is on Thursday nights at 11 p.m., paired with Last Day of School. Also, you can see him with Sentimental Lady every Saturday at 7 p.m. at UCB Franklin. Check him out. Um, I guarantee those are going to be some of the greatest improv shows you see. He is a great comedy director. He is directed for Children's Hospital, so check out the, um, that show. and You can see his great work. Also, he directed episodes for the new show on CISO.com, Bajillion Dollar Properties. You can watch the first two episodes for free on the CISO.com website. Definitely check out his work. Thank you again for listening to I Will Watch Anything Once. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at IWWAO, as well as the Tumblr at IWillWatchAnythingOnce.tumblr.com, and on the Facebook page. Go ahead and go to that. Also, if you have a movie that you think that I should watch, Go ahead and email me at IWillWatchAnythingOnce at gmail.com or message me on Twitter or through the Tumblr, and I would love to watch those movies that you guys suggest, and then I can discuss those on the podcast as well. Go on to iTunes. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Help me get some listeners. And remember, if you haven't seen it once, you can't complain. Even Top Gun, which is a, a fucking insane movie. Like it I is, recently watched that. Oh my god, that movie is. Because <laughs> I had to do Tournament of Nerds as for that. Oh yeah, were you so, goose? Uh, yeah, I yeah, was yeah, goose. you're a goose. Uh, <laughs>